0: Thank you, Laramie. Thank you guys for leading us so well in worship and song this morning. If you have your Bibles uh, this morning, go ahead and turn to Psalm 127. And as Lewis mentioned in the beginning of this message, I'm going to be talking about uh, our philosophy of ministry as it relates to student family ministry here at Woodlawn. And really, uh, when we talk about ministry and we're trying to build principles and really think about ministry, we always have to start at a foundation. What is our foundation uh, for ministry? And whenever we want principles, we need to go to the source, which our firm foundation is the word of God. And and so there's a number of texts that I will be referring to this morning, but I want to, and I'll pick one particular text, which is obviously Psalm 127, as I've already mentioned, but there's a number of texts, some that I've even preached before here at Woodlawn. I'll, I'll list them out for you. And these are some of the texts, Genesis 1 through 3, we see in, in Genesis one to three, the purpose and creation of mankind, as well as the fall and the, the effects of that. We have the fifth commandment and out of the 10 commandments, honor your father and mother. We have the Shema in Deuteronomy six, verse four through nine, which is a command to Israel and, and specifically to parents within Israel to raise their children, to hear the word of the Lord, to love him with all they have. Uh, the book of Proverbs as a whole, Proverbs Solomon is addressing his son, and and this phrase comes up over and over again Hear, my son, hear, listen. And we we are instructed by Solomon as he teaches his son about the fear of the Lord, about wisdom versus folly. Uh, A very well known phrase that I even use often in talking to parents train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. We have this task of training our families. And then Ephesians five twenty-two through chapter 6, verse 4, we see the role of men and women as it relates to marriage, but also the way the household works and, and the way the father disciplines and instructs his children. Uh, an excellent book I'd recommend on that actually is a C.R. Wiley's book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. I just read it this past year. Excellent book that talks about this exact thing. Uh, I would say also, actually, the qualifications for an elder, I think, are really important. I think these qualifications are, are qualifications that every man should try to live up to because it's a, a life of godliness, but I think those help us understand what it means to be a godly man in the context of a home. And even later in First Timothy, First uh, Timothy 5, 1 through 8, it, in, in that passage, it ends talking about if you don't care for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So the text of scripture, and I've only listed a few, there's so many other texts we could focus on that talk about the significance and importance of the family and God's plan for the family. So in preaching this text today, I want to remain faithful to the text. So I'm going to obviously exegete this text, but I'm going to end an application to talk more specifically about biblical principles for student ministry. So the main idea of the passage today that I have is this, uh, total dependence on the Lord is the only way to successfully building and keeping safe all that God gives a believer to steward. Let me say that again. Total dependence on the Lord is the only way to successfully building and keeping safe all that God gives a believer to steward. Now, I've structured this message off the text of two parts. Part one, it's verses one and two, and it is in vain to labor apart from the Lord's involvement. And the second part is verses three to five. God's blessing is epitomized in the provision of children for the security of the family. So let's look specifically at uh, part one here. Verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now notice here the subjects that are mentioned. We have God and the builders and watchmen. We have two different kinds of persons here at work. Obviously, God as sovereign king and Lord over the universe, who's the designer who created all of this. Then we have his people. And notice the way the text shows this. It repeats a couple things. Unless the Lord, unless the Lord. We see that emphasized, right? So the Lord's involvement is absolutely essential here. Why? Well, because what else is repeated? This phrase, in vain. It's mentioned three times total in our text. And right here, as it relates to it being in vain, uh, this is, is about the vanity of toil and of watching when God is absent. When God is absent, meaning absent in his involvement here. Now, notice the context of the involvement as well. We have a house and we have a city, from small to big. We see that very clearly in this text as well. See, God is God of both, we could say the public sphere, the, the big stuff where we're the city, the nation, but he's also the God of the private sphere. He's the God of the home. And in our culture today though, we have a, a, a problem. And if, if you've heard me talk about apologetics before, I often bring this up, this idea of the two story view of reality that our culture has adopted. Francis Schaeffer talks about this in his works and Nancy Piercy and hers. And it goes like this. The bottom story, the bottom floor is the public sphere. This is where people believe in objective truth. And, you know, they would say things like, okay, science is down in this lower story and uh, math and, and facts, those kind of things. But then in the upper story is someone's private sphere. And think of a house that way, right? You go, if someone has a two-story house, often the public area of the house is the living room or the dining room, but the private sphere, the bedrooms, right? It's, so that's why where this illustration is going. So the private sphere is the morals or religion. And our culture has separated that way. And we see that very clearly, for instance, when someone says, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. What are they saying? They're operating in this second story world of reality. And that's a, that's a major problem because God is the God of all creation. He's the God of the home and he's the God of the city. He's the God over it all. And so that's a really bad view of truth. See, God is a God of truth, capital T, all truth. And, and God, as he is himself the truth, right? John fourteen six. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, truth is found in a person. It's found in God. And so when we look at this, and we look at the way even Psalm 127, verse 1 focuses, it's the labor of the house, the watching over the city. God is God over it all. Now, what is vanity? We see this phrase, in Ecclesiastes, for instance, when he says, is of vanities, all is vanity. And what is vanity? Well, vanity is this. It's, it, it means it's futile or it's worthless or meaningless, but it also means false. Uh, Ross, one commentator, he says this, any secular or pagan building, no matter how grand or glorious, is meaningless because it is of no use to God. Neither does it bring him glory. So for a building to be meaningful, the Lord must build it. So, looking at this text, man must work with God in building the house. The watchman must watch with God to protect the city. Now, is the builder of the house really the one building here in, in, in a meaningful way? Not apart from God. Is the watchman going to really be able to protect the city? It doesn't matter. Apart from God, his watching is in vain because an army, a massive army, could come over the hill and there's nothing he can do about it. But God can protect him from that army. So let's focus on the house. So this this is a question. How does the Lord build a house? This is what we must answer, and I think it's truly through obedient builders. Obedient builders. Think of the Shema. He says, hear, O Israel, listen. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and builders are people who listen. Think of Proverbs, like I mentioned as well. We see this phrase, hear, my son, listen, my son. In in Mark's gospel, if you go to the parable of the sower and the parable of the seeds, and there's four different types of soil the seed falls on, you know what's really interesting about each of the different seeds? They all hear the word of the Lord, but only one responds in obedience. See, hearing is more than just mere, I got it, I heard it, I got the information that goes through one ear out the other, right? Hearing in the Old Testament, it implies acting upon what you heard. So, for instance, we've maybe all heard of James chapter 1, 22 to 25. If you look in that passage, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, but it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So a lot of times we'll come to church and we'll hear a powerful message and we'll, we'll say, hey preacher, that was a great message. I was so encouraged by it. And then what can happen is we can go out into our car and we're yelling at our kids and we're not being respectful to our spouse and, and we're cutting people off in traffic. We're rude to our waitress. right? We're not doing what the word says, and we're like that man who looks intently at the mirror and forgets what he was like. You see, you know where true blessing is? Is not just in hearing the word and saying, preacher, thank you for the message. It's going and doing it. That's where the blessing is in the text of scripture. So listening to God's word, building God's house, building your house for God's glory means trusting him by faith. Really, faith is the instrument that a builder wields to construct the house. And what is faith? Faith is not blind. That, that, that's a charge that Christianity often gets from atheism. that It's this blind faith. It's a leap into the dark. You can't see anything. You don't know where you're going. But truly, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's reasonable. Why? Because we have evidence from God's word and from creation from so many other sources to say, look, God is real. God is true. He is who he says he is, and we can trust him. We can rely upon him. So faith is reliance. Each one of you sat down in your pew this morning, did you not? Did you look underneath to see if it was going to break, if it was going to stably hold you? No, you didn't. If if you did, maybe you're a little crazy. Um, no, but right, you just sat down, and when you sat down, you exercised faith, you exercised reliance and trust that that pew would hold you. Are you helping that pew hold you right now? Nope, it's holding you up by itself. In the same way, look we must rely upon God. We must exercise faith in God and trust him. And the foundation of our house is the word of the Lord. So one commentator puts it, he says, the Lord builds the house if one, the people build it by faith in the Lord's provisions for it. Two, in accordance with his will. Three, in a way that is pleasing to him. Four, to dedicate it to his use and purpose. And five, to give glory to him for the accomplishment. You see, it's completely in vain when we try to put efforts toward building our home if the Lord's not in it, if the Lord's not in it. Now, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The purpose of watching is what? For establishing security for your city, to provide safety, to warn others if there is incoming danger. And just like the builder needs God to successfully build his home, the watchman needs God to successfully watch over his sitting. When we think of God's attributes, he's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's all good. And he's all powerful. We need to realize that, that those aspects of God help give us that security and comfort as we are watching, as we are building. And so we go to the word to, do, to learn who this God is and to worship him and to trust him. And this watchman relies on God because he knows who he is, you must know who God is if you're to rely on him. So, in both the builder and the watchman, we see this common theme of total dependence on God by faith. If they refuse to do so, it'll be meaningless. It'll be vain. One can live wisely and cautiously in this world, but they must acknowledge that it is ultimately God alone who protects. It's God alone who builds. So, there's a passage that I really I really find helpful when really understanding how does God and man work together? Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13 talks about this. And, and one, uh, one pastor calls this acting the miracle. It says in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, who's working here? It's both. Paul is commanding the church of Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but where's the work coming from? It's a work of God in you. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is still the source of the work, but you are still commanded to work. And it's, it's a mystery. I think this is where we get into that conversation of divine sovereignty and human responsibi- responsibility. But when we look at this, we, we got to understand we must submit ourselves to God's will. We must trust him. We must obey him. And we go to his word for that. And so we act out that miracle. We trust him and walk by faith. So this is often what we call a, a progressive sanctification. And what, what is that? I mean, it's, it's this, we're on this road, we're on this path to become more like Christ. And it takes time. And and at times we're going to stumble to the left or the right, but we get back up. The proverb says the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. Why? Because he's walking on the way of wisdom and he's trying to hear the word of the Lord and obey the word of the Lord and not walk in folly, but walk in wisdom. And so it's a, it's a progress until we get to God's city, until we get to heaven. So God has an interest in the process. Think about it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, this life of the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it, there's a progress happening here. And God is very interested in that process. So notice how the text continues to examine that process. Look down at verse two with me. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved s- sleep. So we look again, we have our word vain here. It's futile. It's meaningless that you rise up early and go late to rest. So what is someone doing here when they're rising up early and going late to rest? Is really, what the author is trying to communicate is you're trying to artificially lengthen your day, getting up a little earlier to work more and staying up later to work more. Now, is this like a flat-out condemnation of waking up early and going late to rest? No, it's not, because you look at what the text says eating the bread of anxious toil. This is what you're doing by waking up early and going late to rest. You are anxiously working. You're anxiously laboring and it's vain. It's vain to work that way. It's vain to live that way. Notice what it's also vainly tied to, what we just covered. When you are working on your own, when you are eating the bread of sorrows, as, as other translations might translate this, you're, produ- you're, you're producing this food through your own labor, through your own toiling and your stress. You're handling it all wrong. Why? Think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be anxious for anything. Right? He, he, tells, he tells, look, I, I provided even for the flowers of the field. I provided a roof over your head. I provided food for you. Don't be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. If we're seeking God first, we're not going to be anxiously toiling. We're not going to be eating this bread of sorrow. And notice where the text continues to go. He explains his beloved experiences rest. His beloved experiences sleep. This, this person who's working in vain apart from God, they don't experience rest. They don't experience true sleep. For he gives to his beloved sleep. This shows the logical conclusion of this text. Those who live in vanity, they are separate from those who are God's beloved. God's beloved, they rest in their work. Their work is done. Their work is complete. And why? Because it's God who's doing the work and building their house. It's provided for. They have what they need for their house. It is God who's making secure the city. They're trusting him so they can sleep Well, they can sleep rested, not in fear or anxiousness. Maybe many of you have had a a, many a restless night of sleep. I know before I have, and in in being anxious about x, y, or z, a number of things throughout my life. But I know the nights when I'm trusting the Lord, I really do rest, and I enjoy that rest. And maybe today you are waking up this morning, and you didn't sleep well last night, maybe because you're anxious. And God has given each of us a labor in life. And I'm going to talk about that more up ahead as we talk about family ministry. But we, we've all been given a labor of love, a labor in the Lord to serve and to do. And if we're eating the bread of anxious toil, we're not experiencing the Lord's beloved, His sleep that he gives to his beloved. Our life is in his hands. So recall, for instance, when Jesus says uh, to the self-righteous Pharisee or to the, to the audience who had heard the self-righteous Pharisees putting burdens on people. And in Matthew 11, Jesus is inviting people to come to him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say may. He says he will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. So you're still working. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the Lord must be comprehensively involved in every aspect of our lives. We must labor in total dependence on him to build, to watch, to create, and protect. And life is vain when we don't fear God, when we don't rely upon him in humility. The efforts you put yourself to are in vain. So, this concludes part one, but let's look at part two. We, part one was, it is vain to labor apart from the Lord's involvement, but part two is that God's blessing is epitomized in the provision of children for the security of the family. Look at verse three Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when his enemy speaks with him in the gate. So we look, we look here at this text, and this is really, in the ancient world, this is a prime example uh, of God's provision for them, and it and, and applies today as well. But you'll see, based off this text, why. Why? Um, But before I move forward, maybe some of you today as um, well—you weren't able to have children at some time in your life. I think it's important to realize, as the church as a whole, that you get to have spiritual fathers and mothers and spiritual children. You can raise and disciple people. We function as the family of God. So I just—I wanted to say that as well. But this psalmist, what he's doing here is he's showing the process of what building a house looks like and of having a family. So looking at this text, he says, "Look." He says, behold, he wants to point something out very important as it relates to the home. Children are a heritage, or maybe your translation says, an inheritance from the Lord. Now, an inheritance was a really big deal in ancient Israel. So for instance, when uh, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, and the the youngest son says, father, I want my share of the inheritance. That was a very offensive thing to do because he was actually not going to continue on the family life and business he was gonna move on and go do whatever he wanted. He wasn't continuing to build the house, his family's house, name, reputation. It was an incredibly dishonoring move on the part of the prodigal son. And so we we look at this idea and it's it's a really heavy and weighty idea of an inheritance. And we see this language as it relates to our salvation. Right? We've been given an inheritance in Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so this this language is a really important language in scripture. And notice how it lines up in the text. It, it, I love the way the ESV lines things up because it, it almost puts it stylistically together, but it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and then the fruit of the womb, a reward. And so children are often equated and are called even throughout scripture, the fruit of the womb, what's produced coming from a marriage. And so um, this, this picture, by the way, it's, it's really showing that the family's a treasure. Family is a treasure and a culture that devalues life And devalues family. It should be the church that shows what a treasure the family is in in producing children and and showing the value and love that should be bestowed on children because they're a gift. They're a reward. They're a reward. So, as an inheritance, um, children then can, what they can do is they can trust. um, Sorry, I read this wrong. So, as an inheritance or a, a heritage, children are then a trust that one can allot their life's work, and possessions to carry on the work that you and I have done to the next generation, and so on, and so on. If you ever come to my house, I I actually recently received part of my inheritance from my grandfather, and my grandfather gave me a book on our family. And I am a history nerd, and it's a, it's really cool. He actually lays out our genealogies going back to the Revolutionary War era, and, and then some clan history, because I'm Irish-Scottish, and so got the. Read about King Neal of Ireland who killed nine robbers. That's all I know about him. Um, you know, if you're a Neely, you know, you would know. Um, but uh, so the mick part just means son of, if you didn't know that about Scottish heritage too. But, um, you know, reading that was really interesting. I got to see uh, civil war letters from my great, great grandfather and got to see, you know, how many children each of them had, some of them that died, maybe when they were young, and just thinking about their life and thinking about, you know, they came to America. And actually, my um, my great, 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 great grandfather was a slave. He was an Irish slave in America during the Revolutionary War era. And he was rescued from a a master that beat him by another man, a Christian man. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So it's cool, when you look at history, you look at heritage and inheritance, and and it it should mean more today. Uh, I think we live in a time of expressive individualism and we don't focus on family and we really abandon family in a lot of ways. But it's it's so important to really think about passing things on, and and I received that inheritance from my grandfather. I loved it. It's a gift to me, and I I hope to continue filling out the uh, genealogy and maybe go to ancestry.com help finish fill that out. But it's a it's a a really cool uh, gift. But thinking about an inheritance, right? It it brings with it great opportunity, especially in the ancient world, to continue the work. Maybe they were a farmer. Maybe you know they had some sort of trade. a, A fisherman and they could continue that work, building on the previous generation's work. And this required responsible use. So you see, this isn't just about the value of the child in receiving an inheritance or a heritage. It's also a call. Listen here. It's a call to parents to see what a blessing they have from God and the responsibility of handling that blessing in a way that extols the gift that children are to the glory of God, to build their house. You see, it, inquires, it requires care. It requires intentionality. And if we don't approach family, if we don't approach children that way, we're, we're not going to walk the way of wisdom. We're going to walk the way of folly. Now, you look at this phrase once again, the fruit of the womb. This really recalls to mind the garden. Adam and Eve, he says to them, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. This idea of fruit describes a marriage as alive and productive, and as productive it results in children. So the children are the fruit of this marriage union, and they're a precious gift. They're a reward for parents coming together and and having children, and and to raise them into followers of Christ. And look at the next psalm. Let's, Let's read quickly Psalm 128, and look how it actually expounds in that reality. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the bl- man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children peace be upon Israel. There's something so important about family here, right? And it's woven into the fabric of creation. So verse four now goes to give us a simile to describe this. It opens this phrase, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. See, we see the role that children play in the household and the text unfolds this for us. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now here's where they become like arrows. Look closely here. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. See a family that is fruitful with children, filling their quiver of family with, with arrows, they will not be put to shame when they are speaking and dealing with matters at the gate. The gate of the city was the place where legal matters would take place. And so by having a family, having inheritance, having those who will protect and secure your home, your property, they would come together in the town and it would help with legal disputes, but this would make the family's honor, its well-being completely secure. This is a provision from God. Now, looking closely, how does he describe the man with a full quiver? He said, this man is blessed. He is blessed. And to be blessed, it means to be in a state of of happiness, a state of right relationship with God. That's what that means. We're in a right relationship with God as, as we live according to his plan and according to his ways as it relates to the family. So this is, a I think this is a really powerful passage to show us the value of family, but the security that family gives as well, when done the Lord's way. Now, um, I want to reflect a little bit about this passage uh, moving forward, just talking about the idea of the house in scripture. You see, God dwells in a tabernacle at one point, right? He, his, his presence dwells in our tabernacle. And, and that's so important to show the dwelling place of God. And that, that moves on through scripture to dwelling in the temple. And then eventually, as, through the Holy Spirit, dwelling in human hearts as it relates to his dwelling place. But we also see Uh, For instance, in Hebrews, it talks about Moses was a builder of God's house and that that God is the builder of all things. We see this theme of God's building, but we also see in 1 Peter, you know, that you and I, 1 Peter says that we are living stones. And and 1 Peter 2, we are being built up into God's house. So we are part of this house. So God's house is sacred. And and, and the the body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's sacred. And we, we see all these themes in the way that God is using these illustrations in scripture to help us show what's meaningful, what's valuable. And I want to ask you this question, what house am I building? You look at this text. If it's apart from God, it's a vain house. But if it's with God, a blessed house that's being fruitful, it's a house filled with life a house filled with vitality. Notice it says the children of one's youth, youth having to do with vitality, having children while you're young. I think today we extend marriage way too far in our culture. Some people getting married much later. Some, in some cases, people can't help it, but, but our culture teaches in a sense that you should, you should push marriage back. That's what I'm talking about being the problem. I think it's so important that we realize that people should get married as early and responsibly as they can, and it's the role of the parent to help their children get to that place where they are responsible adults and responsible uh, to be in a family together. It doesn't mean they have it all together or perfect, but it does mean they're, they're mature and growing in maturity, but that's a, that's another sermon. Um, So let's, let's continue on here. Okay. So Ephesians five, it shows us the purpose of marriage. I want to talk about that real briefly. The husband and the wife image for us, Christ in the church. See the bedrock of the, of the home is the marriage. And why? We, we look at the marriage, and it's a living metaphor of the gospel. So for we're, we're asking, how do I build a house? Well, you got to start with mom and dad, not dad and dad or mom and mom. It's mom and dad. And what do mom and dad do as husband and wife? They're living metaphors of the gospel. Our homes are meant to point people to the sacred beauty of the gospel. And the marriage relationship, as Ephesians 5 teaches us, it says, the role of Christ Uh, as the husband is meant to show us God's authority over his church that is exercised with initiative and it's in love and it's, it's intentional. The church's response to Christ is meant to image for wives, what it means to submit to godly authority and to follow in humility. That's beautified by that sacrificial love that the husband pours on his wife. So both Christ and his true church have this one goal in mind, glorifying the father. So the husband and the wife should have this goal in mind glorifying the Father in their home. So married couples come together. They build their home. They have children. They raise them in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. And the way they do that is they have their minds set on him. 1 John 2 says this in 15 to 17. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. You see the vanity there? If the world's passing away, along with its desires, why pursue the things of the world? Why even love the world? And notice where the rest of that text goes, Verse, the end of verse 17, but whoever does the will of God, abides forever. Do you want your labor to be in vain? Do you want your watching and trying to protect the way you're protecting your life? you want it to be in vain? Or do you want to rest in God as you build and as you watch? We have a responsibility to build. We have a responsibility to watch. I try to be very intentional on how I raise my boys to build them up, in the fear of the Lord. I try to be very intentional with watching them, protecting them. So for instance, as they ride their new bikes and scooters from Christmas down the driveway, that they don't go into the road. <laughs> I watch over them. I give them rules. I give them commands. I say, these are the boundaries. Don't break them. I have your good in mind. Also, in other ways, maybe indirect ways, what we watch on television, I'm, we're very particular about what our kids might take in. Even something as innocent on PBS is Dino Dana. Teaching that a dinosaur had two mommies. What? It's not even biologically accurate, it's impossible. But what are they trying to teach? Right? And I loved it because Shiloh said, What? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> he got it. But look, it's so important for us to watch our children, right? It's so important to build them up, right? We have to do that. And and as a marriage, we have to model the gospel. And we work together to do that. So doing God's will is the way to build your house. And we know God's will from his word. When we're focused on eternal things, on the word of God and the souls of men, the soul, the little souls in our home, we're seeking to build them up to be like Christ. So we gather from other passages of scripture, like I said, that God is the builder, right? So he knows what he's doing. He's the designer. He's the architect. He, he made the plans. They're, they're, they're that simple. They're clear. They're not unclear. It's not unclear what the role of the husband is, the role of the wife is. It's not unclear what the role of the child is. The child is not the authority in the home. They have no authority in the home. They do not rule the house. The one who rules the house is what? The husband. And God has given him the role to lead his family. And and when we we rule our house as well, we have to do it in such a way that's going to build them up. And, And we'll see that very clearly here in just a moment in some application. But, how do we do this? We have to rely on him. This is what the main idea of the message is. We must totally rely upon the Lord. It's the only way to successfully build and watch over our families that God has given us to steward. He's given it all to us to steward well. We can't do it anxiously. So the word of Christ then, it must dwell in us richly. And so how do we want to see this happen in your family? How do we want to see it happen in your home at Woodlawn? Well, this, this is where it gets more to our application. And so how can you build a long lasting legacy, totally dependent on God? So here I want, I want to show you um, our legacy milestones, walking the path here. And um, our first step is, is the big picture here. So the big picture is we want to create family worship time in your home where you guys are gathering around the word of God where you're getting together, having conversations centered on scripture. We want to capture God moments. So really pointing out the activity of the Lord to your kids in the course of your day-to-day life. We want to host family worship nights, which we, we do. We host family worship nights. We just had one for, for Christmas at biannual gatherings at the church where we can worship and learn together. We want to do family service projects. We've done things like this before. Will there be more up ahead in the future where we get to serve together in our community, but also in in Upward, can I actually even function in part like that where families, you guys serve in, in, in serving our community who comes to us, but there are ways we can go out as well. But celebrating milestones, walking the path of legacy milestones with your families. And let's look at those milestones together, okay? So this concept of milestones, it capitalizes specifically on the things that occur naturally in the lives of your children. So you'll see what we want to do is we want to host an equipping event for parents we want to celebrate together through various types of church events but we'll also provide ideas to to assist you guys in conducting a home event and and resource you guys best we can so let's look at first the milestones for children so milestone number one, and we celebrate typically around Mother's Day or Father's Day is family commissioning day. And, and I want to tell you why we specifically, it used to be family commitment day. We changed it to commissioning because we're realizing as you are having this newborn baby, we're hoping the great commission is on your mind. That, that little one is going to be a little disciple in your home, that they would be discipled into the, the, the ways of the Lord. So what we do is we host a Sunday school class, walking through the concept of shepherding your child's heart and what that looks like and what your role is. And then we'll have, we have a brunch and we celebrate this in a morning service and this family commissioning day coming up. And then we begin by tr- encouraging families to begin the practice of family worship. Obviously with a brand new newborn, just about all you can do is sing to them and you can tell them the word. They won't understand it much, but if you're in the habit really early on, it's really easy to do it as they get older. And so it's, it's really important to do that. And salvation and baptism, milestone number two. And I will say this as well. I mean, we're, I said this is ministry to children. Some students don't get saved until they're students in high school. So these milestones necessarily, we are necessarily, I'm putting them in order, um, but also um, it could be the fact that some of these happen later than others. But salvation and baptism. So we have classes for that. Leading a child to faith in Christ. A training on a Saturday or in Sunday school. We talk about at church, a uh, baptism that's followed by, I am a Christian now. What does it mean to be a Christian? Right? We, we teach that as well. And then a home event. We have a, you know, want to encourage you to, if your child makes that decision to trust in Christ, when they do, to celebrate that, that time, that decision. Now, um, I don't remember the day I came to faith in Christ. I know my wife does. And so it's, it's important to us to, re- to re- be reminded, thank God for the day that we came to faith in Christ. And we encourage our kids, hey, if that's the day, that's, then let's celebrate it. Let's commemorate it in some way, shape, or form. And then number three is preparing for adolescence. So the equipping event here is we have a seminar that covers their identity in Christ. And this is about the time when they're at the age and they're, and they're moving into middle school, middle school times. We just had at this... Um, this past uh, fall. It's normally in the spring, but COVID happened. Uh, so uh, our church event, right, is that, is that topic or with preteens. But then the home event, uh, we we hope to really encourage you as father to son, mother to daughter, to do something in particular to talk about the important changes that are going to be taking place in your life as a preteen, but also um, something that's been uh, encouraged and we've seen from uh, Laramie's PhD professor Scott Annual, uh, his website religiousaffections.org. He he shared an article on there about a manhood ceremony he did for his son Caleb. It's a really amazing uh, thing, and uh, I showed it to our staff and even to the parents at preteen retreat this this past uh, fall. And it's an idea we really want to encourage you as parents to to follow along and and to do that. But also, um, let's move on to the next thing. So milestones for students. So we want to encourage students toward purity. So true love weights or D nows that'll have the theme of of purity uh, and talking about sexual issues of the day. This past summer, I walked our students through Love Thy Body, which is a book by Nancy Piercy on the watershed issues of sexuality in our culture today. But we want to encourage parents to be able to do that as well. And then um, another thing I think is really a beautiful thing is the idea of a purity ring and helping your son and daughter to keep in mind that they should save themselves for marriage one of the things i really appreciate about my my own mother is, is that she gave me her father's wedding band my grandfather died when i was five i'm wearing the wedding band right now and um i i wore it on my right hand uh when i was in, in college and as a reminder of my mom giving that to me and my grandfather was faithful to the end in his marriage and so i wanted to be faithful uh, to save myself from my wife. And, and I did. And so I'm grateful for that. My mom used that, that sweet um, thing to remind me of why it's important to live a pure life. And so milestone number five, this passage to adulthood. So this is uh, something we cover for juniors and seniors. And as they're getting near the end of high school and going into college, uh, it's a sem- we'll have a seminar introducing parents to curriculum resources that parents will be encouraged to use uh, Sunday after church lunch but also um, for a church event. So this spring, for instance, I'm going to be hosting Thinking Like a Christian. It's going to walk through 10 worldview uh, different things. So theology, philosophy, sociology, politics, economics, law, and a few other things. And I'm going to help them try to think like a Christian. And, and within this church event, we'll also include uh, your child's graduation and written letters from those who influence your child. So we have our graduation commissioning uh, event here at the church and we commission the graduates and we're grateful for them. And many of you, uh, especially some of you Sunday school teachers who've worked with our youth have had a huge influence on them and maybe written them letters to encourage them in their walk with Christ as they make this uh, big transition. But a home event could be, you know, a meaningful senior trip with the family and, and to and really celebrate uh, this passage to adulthood. And then our goal is this. Our goal is to make it to the finish line, right? The finish line. And this finish line Uh, it really, this is what we hope to be the results here. So the equipping event, in other words, that your student, by the time they're done with high school, that they would be plugged into the local church and its ministries opportunities. And that we would equip them to be able to do those ministries well for the Lord. And we would help, help show your student how they can serve the body. And that needs to happen both by your example in the churches, uh, but to shepherd them toward their role in the church. And the way that we host this regularly as a church is we provide worship and Sunday morning and Bible study, life groups, uh classes, spiritual gifts and spiritual discipline classes, things like that to help your child or student, young adult at this point to be equipped. And and really, we hope the home event for them personally is that they be walking in the word, that they be doing personal devotions and quiet times and practicing these spiritual disciplines. And so these are our legacy milestones. Uh, like I mentioned, and I think it's so important for us as a church that these are before you. I, I know even as I've, I've talked with Laramie about Gathered in the fall, we've already been discussing how might we implement this even as it relates to worship and, and family worship in the home. You know, uh, for the sake of time, I didn't, I didn't share anything like this uh, like a video-wise, but I wanted to share with you like, what I do in my home. And I have little, little kids. And, and one of the things I do with my boys is I catechize them or I instruct them. And I think that's part of my responsibility as a father is to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And what is catechesis? It's it's a Greek word meaning instruction that we use today. And it really, it's just simply a means of clearly teaching Christian doctrine. And so I ask my kids questions and then they give me answers to them. And under each of those questions and answers, there are scriptures that I can go and refer to to help them uh, understand better what these things are and what these things mean. And it, what it does is it shapes their worldview. It shapes the way they view the world. And it's also um, as children learn new things, which they're, they do, they're sponges, they, they're absorbing everything all the time. It, it becomes a reference point for them to better be able to understand the world that God has made. And when, so for instance, when my son w- was confronting with the two mommy dinosaurs and Dino Dana, why did he think that, that's not right? Because mommy and daddy built a Christian worldview for him and instructed him, catechized him, asked him questions and gave him answers as to what marriage is, what the family is, and helped equip them. So we hope that that would be part of your role in your home. I mean, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but rather bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so it's part of our role, instruction, catechesis, to, to help our children understand the world they live in to instruct them and, and to discipline them. Discipline is, is merely corrective. It's not punitive. You know, punishment is something that's final. Discipline is saying, hey, you're going off the path. Here's the path. Get back on. And there's, there's lots of ways to do that. And we could talk about that another time. But it's so important to realize that that is our role as fathers. And so as a pastor, my desire is to shepherd you in this. That's our desire as a staff to shepherd you in this, to shepherd your family well, to shepherd the flock of God that God has given you. I remember um, a couple weeks ago, actually, Lewis said in a sermon that, you know, if, if we as a staff only minister from, you know, Monday through Thursday, eight to five, how much ministry is getting done? Not a lot. Not a lot. We have an additional responsibility as a staff, and you could say a burden to carry as well. It says we must labor hard to spread the gospel uh, to others and to disciple others. So, what do we try to do? We try to practice biblical hospitality. We try to have people over. uh, We try to go and meet people in their homes, but even us few staff, we can't reach everyone. We can't reach everyone. We can't reach the people that you work with or the people who live on your street. It's our responsibility then to do what to equip you. Look, look with me as we close here in Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter four. And in Ephesians four, starting in verse 11, It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So this is shepherds, teachers, pastors. This is our role here. What did he give them to do? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, our role is to equip you. Our role is, because guess what? You have a ministry. This is what the text of scripture says. You have a way to serve God a way to worship God in the context of the church. And our job is not to do all the ministry for you. Our job is to do ministry by ministering to you that you might minister to others. Our job is to equip you. And why? To build up the body of Christ. Notice verse 13, for how long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And as the body of Christ, we want to see that happen. As a pastoral staff here, we want to see that happen. So really, I think a lot of times student ministry in particular focuses on the wrong things. And so as a pastor, I want to focus on the right things. I want to focus on the word as, I, as I'm here at Woodlawn. I think programs and ministry often can be focused on example so that, or imitation. They're trying to really copy those those they've seen it do before. You've heard it said, oh, we've always done it this way. In other words, we've been copying other people. We've been following this example. That doesn't mean that's always the right way. Um, Others maybe build their programs off of experience or their involvement, so they equate experience with truth. They think this is the best way to do it, so it's right. So if we did it then, well, then it's okay. Or uh, maybe they base it off of emotion. This feels right, so I'm going to do it if it feels wrong, I'm not going to do it, right? So people will build their ministries that way, but that's not how ministry is built. It's founded in the word. We can't build anything unless the Lord is involved, so we go to him. And our goal ultimately is godliness. Our goal is maturity, a completed building. It takes building. And building a house, you know, you need to start with some absolutes, right? You need to start with some laws. There's, when you build a house, there's, you have building zones, you have building codes, you have standards, you have, you know, you have approved contractors. there's a cost right? And so when we go to the word, we we look for those kind of things, those those rules. Rules are good. Rules are good things. Um, but we don't follow rules for rules sake. We, we obey because we love God. You know, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? And so we don't, we obviously can't earn our salvation. We know that very clearly, but there's a role of, of works in the Christian life. And Titus focuses on, on that a lot. He says, he focused on good works. You see that phrase pop up over and over again. We were saved to do good works. So now really for us today and for your response, I think from this message today is really making a commitment. You need to make a commitment to integrity as, as according to these codes and standards and to refuse to cut corners and, and to say, I'm going to build this house with the Lord's help. And as, um, I did say closing in Ephesians, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, Matthew chapter seven. I want to, I do want to, I'm genuinely closing on this passage of scripture. I promise. Um, sorry. I lied in church. That was horrible. Um, Matthew seven, 24 to 27. I think this passage sums up very well. Even the imagery of a house, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The only difference between these two houses, according to Jesus's illustration, they both heard, but one didn't do. And the one that didn't do was the house on sand. And notice, this is a text about obedience to Christ. You could be in this church and you could say, I'm a Christian. But if you're only hearing and you're not doing, you're building on the sand. You're building in vain. You are not doing it with the Lord. You're not depending on him. So if you're a family in here and you're just doing things the way that you've seen it done and you're not doing it the way that God commands it. Let me encourage you to repent, to, to turn and how you're going to live your family, how you're going to help them and build them up and instruct them and discipline them. It's so key that we as a church get this right because the family is it's, it's the bedrock of society. We're seeing when the family is being destroyed in our culture, see what's happening in our culture. We must reclaim the family. If you don't, if you don't seek to do that for your own home, it's going to lead to destructive results. Literally life and death consequences. So listen, if if you're a believer today, where are you today on this legacy path? We laid out these five milestones with a finish line. Where are you out on that path? Are you intentionally walking it? Are you encouraging your children to walk in it? Are you striving in vain? Maybe are you seeking to give your family all the wor- world's goods without giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ and build them up? That's you today. I Encourage you to repent. Maybe you're an unbeliever this morning and you're you're maybe wondering why you're hearing a message on the family, uh, why are maybe why you're even in church this morning? Well, listen, your life, you're building something, and and as I talked about this text, if you're an unbeliever, you are doing your life apart from the Lord, and the Lord has a plan for your life. But that plan must be in accordance to his will. And if you choose to reject him, that plan for your life is eternal separation from God in hell. But guess what? There's good news. It's called the gospel. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to give you eternal life, to give you hope, to give you a right relationship with him. Will you accept his offer of salvation? It's found in the person of Christ. Christ lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sin and rose again from the grave to give you eternal life, to forgive you of your sin. Will you accept it today? I hope if you're an unbeliever that you will choose to not just hear this message, but to do it and respond rightly and, and and come and give your life to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you've given us your word to guide us in building our house on the rock. And Lord, we ask that you would help parents to do so as they as they were able to hear from your word this morning. We want our, our homes to be fruitful. We want them to glorify you. We trust you and depend on you for its provision, for its security. You are our rest. You are our hope. So today, if you are not walking rightly with Christ, would you consider making that decision to follow Christ today? You can either come down here, Pastor Lewis and I will be down front, and you you can come down here and and speak with one of us, or you can turn to a neighbor around you. There's someone that's sitting in the pew around you. They know the gospel. They'd be glad to tell you how much the Lord has done for you. And second, if if you're someone who is hurting, you're needing prayer. We'll be down here at the front to to pray with you. If you if you need anything, we would love to come alongside you and assist you. And maybe. Maybe you're broken over the state of your family. Maybe maybe you feel lost and confused on what to do next. Well, we're here for you. We want to help you point you to the Lord that you might build your house in a way that's not vain, but it's filled with meaning and purpose. And maybe maybe you're someone who is not a member of this church, but you're seeking and you you would like to become a member today. We, we encourage you. Make that evident by stepping forward today and, and coming down and speaking with Pastor Lewis or myself. And we'd be glad to, um, to get to know you and, and, and see about you becoming a member here at the church. And, and Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the impact it has on us in shaping our worldview. Help us to live rightly according to your word and to live for things that are eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.